Good morning, church. Sam, can I have a little bit of house light? Um, We've been working our way along a path that began with Ephesians chapter 1. And so for, for, for the sake of your memory, if you have your Bible with you, you might want to just kind of go back to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning around 16 down to about 19. Just to kind of reset where we started back right, right at Thanksgiving. And I know it's been a long time since Thanksgiving. If you're as old as I am, it, uh, it passes really fast, but you still can't remember it. And so I just want to, want to remind you, we're kind of driving toward that direction today. Um, we're going to be uh, traveling a little bit and um, looking at a couple of different places in the scripture. But we started out with two uh, seeming to be opposing ideas. And so we're, going to, we're going to finish there today. Where on the one side, there's holy discontent. That thing that God places on your heart that you just can't stand and you have to do something about. And on the other side, there's the contentment that is found in Christ Jesus. That when we, when we are connected with him in, in that place where we, we are held in his hand, we just know. We have in that space in our heart a recognition that that is the place where we need to be. And no matter what else we're doing, no matter what else is disrupting or disturbing, whether it's the, uh, the, the cars that are cut in front of Terry on the freeway, or whether it's uh, something else that's going on in our specific day or specific life, in all of those things, in all of those experiences, we can know that we sit in the hands of God and we're content there. And so the balancing of those ideas, and as we are beginning a new year and uh, starting to look at the, the different things that we might want to do in 2017, um, I ask you with what Terry asked the children, have you made any, uh, any predictions on the outcome of 2017 for yourself yet? Have you looked at 2017 and said, when I finish 2017, I would like to... I do not go to the gym in January. Now, I haven't gone to the gym much lately in a while, but I do not go to the gym in January. Because everybody, their brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, and aunts are there. They're only there for January. So if you start in February, they're all gone again, and you're back to the normal group of people who are present. But everybody seems to have, I'm going to lose a little weight, I'm going to get stronger, I'm going to do something for my heart or whatever. That's, their, that's sort of one of the things that we set, to do, set out to do in January. And I don't know if you set out to do that. You do maybe a little extra rocking this week or do something to sort of, you know, change your food habits. You eat bigger salads at lunch or something. You're just you're trying to, to change some things, to do, to do some things that might make uh, life a little different. Um, did you set any spiritual goals? Did you look at yourself and say, you know, last year I didn't get... I didn't get along as well as I had hoped I would in my spiritual development. I didn't, I didn't uh, stay engaged as much as I hoped I would in my, in, in my personal devotional life. So you up, you're going to up the ante on something like that. I don't know where you are, what you're thinking about. Maybe, maybe church has been your thing. Maybe you said, all right, I'm going to start going to church more regularly. I'm going to be at church, and you, you have done well in 2017. So far, good job. Not everybody made that one this morning, but you did. So I don't know where you set your plan, but uh, I wanted to share with you this morning what I believe are some of the expectations of God, okay? That in 2017, as we start dealing with these things and looking at, uh, at what lays out in front of us, what are the expectations of God? 
And what I'm going to take this morning is what I think is, a, is one of those foundational expectations, one of those baseline expectations that, that influences everything else, that, that really sets a course. As you recall, uh, maybe we had a, a compass in our hand back at the beginning of December, that this is one of those things that helps set a course for our life, baseline expectations of God. And so I want to uh, read to you uh, Rev, uh, Matthew chapter 25. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. Note that everybody got something. There were, there were no zero talent people. So if you're sitting there today saying, I'm a zero talent person, they don't exist. No, there's no such thing as a zero talent person. You have talent for something. It may just be whistling, but that's a talent. Okay? You, you may have the talent for growing hair. It's a talent that some of us wish we had. Whatever it is, there is some talent. Nobody's a zero talent person. Everybody has at least something. And so I want to start with that baseline for all of us. is that some expectations of God. That the thing that God expects is that your talent will be harnessed for the kingdom. Okay? One of the baseline expectations is that your talent will be harnessed for the kingdom. Now, you know, while a lot of us think we have disqualifying factors, right? You know, if you knew how I've used my talents in the past, you would not be asking me to use that for God, right? I, you know, I'm, I used to really do some things with my talents that I wish, wish nobody knew about. And, and you regret those things. You lay in bed sometimes at night worrying about and maybe not even worrying about, just feeling bad about. You know, I've given these things over to God. I trust his grace and I trust his blood, but I, I just regret that I've done some of the things I've done. And you just kind of sit there and stew in that a little bit. Those are not disqualifying factors. Those are not disqualifying factors for the person who's called under the umbrella of God's grace to use his talents from today forward. Okay? So um, I wanted to start with somebody at the beginning of the scriptures who has lots of disqualifying factors in his life. You remember this guy, right? Uh, you've maybe seen the movie The Ten Commandments, or maybe you've read Exodus before, but uh, there in the story are, are, the, are the history of a young man who was born at the wrong time. You ever heard that? Ever heard that come out of your mouth? I was just born at the wrong time. I, I have a... a, a a son who has occasionally mentioned that he wishes he was born in like some previous centuries, you know, the 17 or the 1800s. He wishes that he kind of, it feels like he's a little out of time, that he, he would have fit better in, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. I, I usually try to remind him about the sanitary conditions of a hundred years ago. You know, what, you, you want to go outside to go to the bathroom? You want to go get your water from a well that everybody else is using and not everybody's watching what goes in that well? You know, how much you really want to be 100 or 150 or 200 years ago? Maybe not. Maybe not. Pre-penicillin, bad choice. You know, maybe pre-dentistry, bad choice. Think about all the blessings and benefits you get for having been born when you are. But this man was born out of time. He was born at a time when the government instructed that people like him should be killed. That's kind of like being born out of the wrong, in the wrong place, right? Moses was born at a time when everything was set out against him. His people had become slaves. They had done really well for like 300 years. Along comes Moses and all of a sudden now they're slaves. And 
There are so many of them that the government says, you know, we can't have all these, all these illegal immigrants here. We're going to have to start killing off the babies. And so they said, Allah, you're going to get rid of all these babies. We're going to do, deal with them by dealing with all the boys. And that if we deal with all the boys, then we don't have to worry about the girls. Right? She was born at the wrong place, under the wrong circumstances, at the wrong time. You know the story. His mother rescues him, builds him a little papyrus basket boat, sets him out on the Nile full of crocodiles, by the way. Let's him float out there on the Nile among the crocodiles rather than die at the hands of the Egyptians. How's that? Not a great uh, sort of stellar circumstance to start your life either, is it? And yet there he was, floating among the reeds and the crocodiles, maybe some little ones trying to get into the basket while he's there. He's crying and uh, the young princess of Egypt either hears him, sees the basket, somehow her attention is drawn to it. I want you to note what the Bible says about him. She sends her servant in to get him. Princesses do not deal with crocodiles on their own. They send somebody else to deal with crocodiles. Pulls the baby out of there. You know the, the, the story maybe. His rescue then takes place. His sister comes along and says, hey, I can get you a nursemaid for this baby. And her mother, got to love this story, a slave gets paid to nurse her own baby. God is on your side. Amazing things can happen. I want to pick up the story. He has, he's killed a man, which he regrets. And we're not sure whether he regrets killing the man or regrets being found out. But we know as a result of being found out, he leaves town. He's gone off to Midian. He's found himself a foreign wife, not an Israeli wife, but a Midianite wife. He has two little boys, and we find him in chapter 3. If you have your Bible with you, it's, it's Exodus chapter 3. If you're, if you're uh, looking for it in, uh, in your device, it's Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert. Now, I want to stop there for a sec. You want to talk about the middle of nowhere? He took his flock out to the back of the desert. I didn't know there was a back of the desert. But apparently there's a front of the desert where normal people go, and then there's the back of the desert where this guy's at. Moses has gone so far out in the boondocks that people call it the back of the desert. He's gone out to the back of the desert, to Mount Horeb. Now, if we have found the right place, Mount Horeb is truly out in the middle of nowhere. If, if Mount Sinai is the place we think it is, if it's the right place, um, having been there, it takes a long time to get to nowhere and then you're there. That's where Sinai is. It is out in literally the middle of nowhere and nothing. Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. In a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. I have, I have a, 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 an idea for, uh, for those of you who have, have skills. I think someone should build like a, bath, a backyard warming uh, sort of space. You know, put a little brick uh, circle around it. And make this make a brass bush that you can put gas in and just make a bush that's on fire but not being consumed. Right? When you get that made, call me. I want to come over and see it. 
because I do not have those skills. But I think it would be cool. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight and why the bush does not burn. Now, I love the way the Bible says this kind of stuff. I will now go and see this great sight and why the bush does not burn. Do you think he really said that to himself? No. I don't think he even thought it out quite that clearly. I just think there was nothing else on the TV. And so he said, hey, there's something to go look at. We've been looking at the same things for a long time. Let's go check that out. And so he heads out just to see what this is. What, what is this weird spectacle that I see? There's a bush out here. It's on fire. It doesn't seem to be burning out. Now, he had seen bushes burn before, apparently. And he knew how bushes were supposed to act when they were on fire. And this one wasn't acting as it was supposed to. So he moves toward it to check it out, just to see what's there. He has no real intent to encounter anything other than this bush that's on fire but is not being consumed. So verse 4, then the Lord saw that he turned aside to look. You think? God called to him from midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Now, it, it, could you just for a second take yourself out of your seat and imagine this? I know I tell you this often, but come on. He's by himself in the back of the desert. There's nobody around. There's nothing around. There's barely food out there for these sheep. He's out there in the boondocks. A bush catches fire but isn't burning. He goes to see what this is, and the bush talks to him. Stop acting like this looks normal. This should flip him out. This should, it should flip us out. We should be looking at this going, whoa, that's weird. But we, we, we saw that in the movie. It was right there. Yeah, Charlton Heston walked right up to the bush. It was on fire, but it wasn't burning. It was cool, but you know, everybody does that. No, they don't. And then the bush talks to him and knows his name. Moses, Moses. And the Bible just downplays this stuff like it's ordinary. And he said, here I am. I doubt it. I don't want to doubt the inspiration of Scripture. I think Moses kind of calmed things down because he was screaming and running like a little girl out into the woods, or a little boy, and he, whoever's offended. And he was running off across the, the, the desert there. And, and I think he's like, ah! But he didn't want to write that in there. It's a long word. Ah! It's terrible to write in Hebrew. You've got to write it backwards. You know, I, think, I think Moses downplayed it a little bit like, I was cool. It was, I was, hey, happens all the time. I saw a bush. It was burning. I said, hey, I will go and see this bush, which is burning but is not being consumed. I think when he's writing the story, he's kind of cooling himself out a little bit. Right? And so when he, when he, he stands in front of the bush and the bush says, Moses, Moses, he didn't write down, I cried, I fell on my face, I rolled over in the dirt, I was screaming. I said, here I am. Like everybody does. Right? Here I am. I just don't think he wanted us to make fun of him. We'll do that later when we get to heaven. We'll say, you did not say, here I am. Who will join me to check that out? I am in. I am all for, there's some people I have some questions for. Here's one of the questions. 
you did not say, here I am. Yeah, but it was embarrassing what I actually said. Then he said, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off of your feet, for this place where you stand is holy ground. Do you think God is trying to impress something on him at this moment? He said, okay, Moses, stop where you are. Quit running around and screaming. Wipe your tears. Take off your shoes. He got his full attention. The place where you are standing is holy ground. There's there's about to be a worship event here between you and I. Do something to change your posture toward me. Take off your shoes. Change the way you're thinking about what's happening right now. Take off your shoes. Something big is about to happen to you, Moses. Take off your shoes. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now I think we're getting a little bit of a picture of what's probably actually happening. You do know that the posture of a person who stands in front of God at this point in history is face down, head in the dirt, right? He probably fell completely on his face and hid his face. It, It would not be uncommon for a person to pray like this. Face down, hands over their eyes. Probably the posture he takes now in front of the bush that's burning, in his bare feet, and the bush is talking to him, he's now assumed an appropriate posture for the occasion. On his face, with his hands covering his eyes, because he now knows, man, I am talking to God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry, Because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrow. For I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to do a good, to to a good and large land flowing with milk and honey. So far, what do you think of what God is telling him? Good deal, right? I've come to rescue the people of Israel. That's what he said. I've I've seen their trouble. I've come to take them out of that land. Take them to a good land. So, up to this point... God hasn't told anything to Moses about what he's doing, what his part might be. Now, therefore, verse 9, Behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh. Now, have you ever begun to understand the revelation of God? And, and you, you, you got it, and you're like, man, this is cool stuff. I'm looking at what God's saying. God's saying this amazing, interesting stuff, and I'm beginning to understand it. And then all of a sudden you realize it applies to you. At that point, when it starts to apply to you, do you change the way you're thinking at that moment? You see, Moses up to this point, great, you go, God, go get them, get them, get those Egyptians, get them, people, take them out, put them in a good place. And he's like, yeah, yeah, go, God. And I'm sending you. Wait a second. Did you read the rest of this chapter? He argues with God for the rest of the chapter. Not me. Don't say me. You're not the guy. You got it. Somebody else. I'm not a good. I don't talk right. Things are not good for me. I'm not. No, 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 no. He argues for the whole rest of the chapter. We won't even read the rest of the chapter because it's a discussion with God where he's arguing about going to Egypt to rescue the people. You're not sending me to Pharaoh. Not me. I'm not. I'm, not, I'm a nobody. Look at me. I'm out here in the back of the desert with somebody else's sheep. I am a nobody. Go to chapter 4. 
Chapter 4 begins. The argument is still on. Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me. You're going to go to your people. You're going to tell them that I sent you. Suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Now stop for a second. Is this a reasonable question? Yeah, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have this question? You're going to talk to the people of Israel saying, God wants to rescue you out of Egypt, and he's talked to me and told me to come and tell you this. Wouldn't you, if you were the receiving people, if you're on the receiving end of this message, wouldn't you say, God talked to you? Right. Burning bush that didn't burn. Sure. Did you have a bad pizza? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be wondering if this guy was just a little, you know, he's been out in the desert for a long time. You know, the sun can bake your brain. You know, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you just wonder if he had a screw loose? I would have. And Moses asked the obvious question. I go and tell those people that you sent me. They're going to say, you're nuts. God hasn't been talking to you. You've been talking to yourself. Anybody ever told you God was talking to them? How did you respond? Most of the time, you look at them like they have a screw loose. You know it, and I know it. Moses says, they're going to look at me like I have a screw loose. And they're going to say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And this is where I want to, this is where I want to sort of focus in. What is that in your hand? He said, it's a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So Moses, in an obedient mood at the moment, cast it on the ground. And it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Now, apparently Moses has looked up now. Because he can't be laying on the ground with his hands over his eyes if he threw his rod on the ground and it became a snake and he knew, right? So he has to apparently be at least looking now. He drops it on the ground, it becomes a snake, and the Bible says he ran away. Do you remember what the first thing God told him when he stepped up in front of the bush was? Take off your shoes. No shoes. Hot footing it across the desert. Out, 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 out. Like running across the pavement in July. I just, I just have this great picture of Moses. I hope there's a video somewhere. Just running through the desert barefoot. The Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand. First, I think the Lord said, stop, come back. Either that or the snake chased him. (laughs) Right? Because it doesn't say, and then he went and found the snake. Right? It just says, the Lord said, stop, pick up the snake. The Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it. And it became a rod in his hand again. If you keep reading this chapter, toward the end of the chapter... This is now called the rod or the staff of God, depending on your translation. The end of this chapter, the recognition of what's happened to this little piece of wood is clear in the text. So here's where I want to I jump off with us today. I want you to, to, to think of those encounters, those moments when God speaks to you. Ephesians chapter 1, we talked about the calling that God has on your life. You know there's been times in your life when God has whispered something to you, right? He said, this is, this is you. This is the direction of your life. This is what I'm calling you to do or to be. And I don't know what it was. To me, it was pretty clear. To me, it was, a, it was not just a calling. It was a, 
It was repetitious. It was continuous, though I was trying to ignore it. It was forceful, but quiet. It was constant until I gave into it. I don't know if that's how it worked for you or works for you. That you hear a moment when God is speaking to you, He's calling to you. Ephesians says, I, I would like the, the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you will hear the calling of God on your life. It's, not, it's different for everyone. Everyone's call is specific to their gifts and talents and their skill sets. They're specific to each of us. But there's a calling on our life. There's a moment when we're standing in front of this bush that's burning but not on fire. And, and, and there's a call out of that moment when God has our attention to direct something in our lives, to, to lead us in something, to, to say, hey, this is, this is where I'd like you to go. And it happens to kids. It happens to adults. It happens to young people. It happens to grandparents. It happens to us throughout our lives. And it actually can change over time. Moses is 80 years old when this happens to him. We always think of Moses, you know, young, strapping Charlton Heston-esque. We think of him as, you know, this, this 25, 30-year-old guy, right? He's 80 years old when this happens to him. Now, he lives another 40 years, right? He's in the desert 40 years. But nonetheless, so take two-thirds of your life and say, okay, I was two-thirds of the way through my life. Pick your end. I don't care. You, you pick it. And that's where God says, the biggest mission I have for you starts today. The biggest deal. You finally learned enough? You finally figured enough things out, you at least have the good sense to take off your shoes when I tell you to. Let's go. That's when he got this call in his life. So if you're thinking, no, 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 calling on your life happens when you're 12, 15, 25, not when you're 55, no, no, not when you're 65. I got news for you. Moses was 80 years old when God gave him the biggest assignment of his life. Calling on his life came at, a, at what, what at least would be considered two-thirds of the passageway through his life. So if you're feeling like you're about two-thirds of the way, watch for the bush. Be ready for the fire. Take off your shoes. This could be the day. So the Lord begins to have this conversation with Exodus chapter 4. He says, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to me, to my voice. Suppose they say, you got to screw loose. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? Okay, take out, take out your hand. Look at your hand. What's in there? Nada. Right? It's just, it's just a hand. Here's my hand. What is that in your hand? But could, could you recognize the symbology of that hand? What you do with it? What, what it means to you, how it defines you, how it, how it expresses you, those gifts, those skills, those talents. What is that in your hand? Fact number one. There'll be two of these. That's why they're numbered. Fact number one. God does not ask questions for the sake of information gathering. Right? If you're omniscient, you do not ask questions to gain knowledge. Omniscient means you have all knowledge. So you're not asking questions if you're God because you need information. He says to Moses, what's that in your hand? Not because he doesn't know what's in Moses' hand. It's like when Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden and God comes out and says, where are you? He knows where they are, but do they know where they are? 
Do they recognize what they're doing? He calls them to an understanding of what's going on in their lives. Just as with Moses, he calls them to an understanding of what, has, what he has in his hand. What is that in your hand? What resources do you bring today? What's in your hand? What have I given you? What are you holding? What is that that's yours? What's in your hand? He is calling Moses' attention to his hand. And he says, a shepherd's staff. Wouldn't seem like much, would it? A shepherd's staff. It, it would, it's a piece of wood. Usually they've bent it. There are people who carry a straight staff, but normally there's a bend in the staff. A shepherd's staff has a bend for a reason. Once in a while, you need to get a hook on a sheep or a goat and get it going in the right direction. Literally, it was like the lasso for, for a, a, a cattleman. They literally would take the bent end and they would sometimes throw it around the neck of a, of a sheep or a goat who's walking off in the wrong direction, going astray, yank it back in line. Give it a tug and kind of say, hey, buddy, get over here. You know, it's, it's, in fact, it's in fact the idea that he would hook him and pull him back in. We get the phrase by hook or by crook here. The, the staff is sometimes called a crook. On the other end, it's pointy. In fact, later they would put actually little metal sharp objects on the end. And when this, when this sheep or goat wasn't doing what they said, if they couldn't hook it, they would poke it. Hey, get over here. When they were going into, into some hole or gotten themselves stuck or tried to swim, they would drag them out. They would hook them or crook them by hook or by crook. So it's, it's, a, it's a tool. It's, it's a piece of wood that's been fairly well handled. By now, he's been a, a shepherd for a long time. These, things carried these, these guys carried these things until the oils of their hands became the varnish on the wood. They had handled them for so long that the, the dirt and the oils of, their, of the, the work that these, these things did became sort of a patina covering and marking them. And it, it kind of was their only, only friend out there. You know, this is like Wilson in Castaway. Those of you who didn't see it, Wilson's a volleyball. It's probably on Netflix. A guy gets cast away on an island. The volleyball washes up. Don't, don't tell you the whole story. But he starts having conversations with this volleyball. He speaks to him by name, calls him Wilson because he's a Wilson volleyball. The staff would be something like Wilson. This is all they have. And, you know, it's their companion. These sheep are just sheep. And, you know, there's probably a favorite and he probably talks to the dog. But, he's, you know, this staff is so important as just a friend, just a a tool that he's comfortable with. What do you have in your hand? What are the tools of your life, of your trade, of your, of your experience, of the, of the promise fulfilled or unfulfilled that lies in you? What, a, what is it that you have in your hand, Moses? It's just a staff. But what was this staff? It represented his identity. Who carries a shepherd's staff. Shepherds. So if you go to the market and a guy's walking around with this bent stick, you know what he does, right? 
You know, if you pull up behind a pickup truck and it's got big square boxes on the side of it, you know that this guy's probably a boss on a construction site, right? You know, he may, he, maybe he owns a, a company. It could be plumbing. It could be electrical. It could be contracting of some other sort. It could be a general contractor. But those big box things on the back of the, of the, of the truck, you kind of know, okay, this guy's he's got kind of a leadership role on a construction site. You just know it from looking at it. I'd like to just drive one around so I could have my junk back there. I got a lot of junk in my garage. Then I'd have my junk in my trunk. Truck, as the case may be. If you look at people, you can often tell what they do by what they have on, what they carry around. Guys walking around with a stethoscope around his neck, you think, okay, medical professional, right? Usually, your auto mechanic doesn't have a stethoscope, although mine does. He uses it to listen to stuff in the engine. Puts the stethoscope on, he listens. Number three valve, that seems to be sticking a little bit to me cool actually you can often tell an individual's job their identity wrapped up in the what they carry around with them this was his identity he had left home he had gone to a foreign land he lived with people he, who were not his family and this little stick became part of his identity number two it represented his income all of his investments are tied up in sheep futures right out there among all, the, all that flock is everything he owns. Everything of any value to him is kind of out there other than his wife and his two kids. It was all right there. And this represented his income, his identity, his income. And number three, his influence. This, this staff represented his influence. Not, not just the influence of, of his around this flock, and it certainly represented that, but also his influence in the community. There was a certain status for him built upon the idea that he was carrying this staff. As he walked through the community, there was a certain influence granted to him by the fact that he was carrying this staff. It identified him. It represented his income, and it represented his influence. Okay? What's that in your hand? What are you holding in your hand? What is it in your hand that identifies you? What is it in your hand that represents your income? What is it in your hand that represents your influence? What's in your hand, Moses? It's just a staff. It's just, it's, it's just this thing that I carry around. It's not that important. God, what, what do you, why do you care? We, we could go on about Moses' hand because you watch what God does to him next with, with his hand, and, but you get my point, right? Throw it down on the ground. Take this thing that identifies you, that represents you, that is so much core to who you are, and let it go. So here's... Here's my, you, know, you know what I'm going to ask, right? You know what I'm saying here, right? You've kind of already gone to my next point, right? You already know that this is what God expects of us. That we release the things that are near and dear, identifying us, representing us, showing our influence and maybe even our income, and we let those things go. We, we release them. 
this thing falls to the ground. What happens to it? Crazy, miraculous thing happens to it when it lets it go, right? This thing becomes a snake, which frightens him. Have you ever been a little bit afraid of what God might be calling you to? Ever been a little bit of a, afraid of letting go of what God has given you, what you've been given, the talents, the abilities, the spiritual gifts, leadership, blessings, whatever it is, even your personality? Have you ever, have you ever thought about letting go of that thing? I, I meet people every once in a while and they'll say, oh, well, you know, I, I blow up at people all the time, but that's just my personality. Let it go. Let it go. We, we kind of use that as a crutch sometimes, right? We lean on it. We say, well, I, I, I'm not outgoing. I'm not, I, I can't be up front. I, that's not my personality. I, I, let it go. Because if he calls you to it, he will empower you for it. And it may not be a lifetime. It may just be a moment or a season. Right? It became a lifetime for Moses, but for many of us, there's a momentary call for an event, something that needs, needs to be dealt with. God needs to call us to for this moment that he'll release us from in the next. But right now, he's just saying whatever it is that you've got in your hand, whatever you're looking at that's defining you, whether it's, it's your stethoscope or your wallet or your gears or your tears or your, or, or your kids or your tools, whatever it is, let them go. Let them hit the ground and watch what I do when they hit the ground. And it becomes a snake. And he says, now that I have shown you the potential, pick it up again. Let it go so that I might show you what I can do with it when you let it go. And then pick it up again. Now that you've seen the possibilities. It's just a little possibility. God doesn't do miracles for the sake of just, you know, showing off. But he does one for Moses. He's not just showing off. He's like, hey, Moses, watch this. Boom. Wah. Ah. Soundtrack. He doesn't just do this to show off. He does this to show Moses. And he's saying to you and I, release what identifies you. Release the things that make you who you are. Let go of the crutches. Let go of the things you think are your strengths. Let go of the things that you think are are, are gifts, even from me. Let go of them. Let me handle them. And then I'll let you have them back once you see what they can be once I'm in control of them. The rod of Moses becomes the rod of God. What happens to this thing? Amazing. It turns into a snake. Reach out and grab it by the tail. I love the fact that Moses jumps back. Moses runs. Moses is afraid because so many times I don't want to let go of what God has given me. I'm afraid to let it go. I'm afraid of what he might do with it. It scares me. I like the fact that Moses has been trying to cop out on this call. I like the fact that he's been arguing with God for a chapter now. I like the fact that he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. And God actually says, okay, you big baby, we'll have your brother help you. Moses didn't put that in either, but I'm asking. (laughs) Let your brother help you. Yeah, I can't talk. You're talking to me. Who made your lips? I love this question from God. What do you mean you can't talk? Who made your lips? 
Watch what happens with your staff. Stop. Pick it up. And it turned back into a staff in his hand. Once the staff has been in the hand of God and out of the hand of Moses, miracles happen because of it. He touches the water of the Nile. It turns to blood. He lets it go in Pharaoh's office and it turns into a snake. Pharaoh's guys let go of some snakes and his snake eats their snakes. Miraculous things happen as a result of this. This is what he strikes the water and splits the Red Sea with. This is what he strikes the rock with and the water from God comes out of it. It's this, this simple thing he's been carrying around his whole life and he's been hanging on to it, trying to do, trying to squeeze every last bit of goodness out of it and he won't let it go. Forty years in the making, he's holding on to this thing. It's got his sweat, his blood, his tears. He lets it go and God begins to do amazing things with this normal, ordinary thing he's been hauling around with him all this time. You and I have been hauling around the things God wants us to let go of our entire lives. Can you let it go? Can you let it go? Once you let it go, you will only then begin to see what God can do with it. What's God expecting of us? It's pretty simple, really. Letting Him lead. Letting Him be the boss. Letting him take what we thought identified us and let it be identified with him. Think about what happens with this thing. Moses' identity with God is now being described with the staff. He carries this thing into Pharaoh's office. Pharaoh must think this thing is a magic wand or something by the end of the time he's there. He just keeps doing stuff with it, raising it in the air, touching stuff with it, and things keep changing because of, of this staff. Because Moses' identity, his connection with God, is now tied to this rod. It begins to identify Moses as a man who's following after God because he's not carrying a shepherd's rod anymore. He's carrying the staff of God, the rod of God in his hand. That's what's cool about this. It's the same piece of wood, but it's no longer empowered by Moses. It's now empowered by God. Before he could drag sheep back with it, he could poke unruly sheep, he could defend himself if some some marauding coyote came running along. He could do a lot of things with it, but now that it's in the hand of God, God is doing stuff with it. What are the expectations of God? Release your skills and your talents and the things that identify you your income, your ability, your, your personality, release those things to God and see what He might do with those. Imagine what He might do with those. This becomes Moses' authority from God. Moses is able to do these things not because of his own authority, because now he recognizes this is God's authority. And last, it becomes Moses' influence under God. Now Moses has become the guy who carries the staff of God around. Now Moses is not just the guy who leads sheep out to the backside of the boondocks. He's now the guy who leads millions of Israelites 
the promised land. What's really changed? He doesn't have a shepherd's rod anymore. He has the rod of God. And so I finish with this. Back to Ephesians chapter 1. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know. The thing that's missing here is the calling of God on your life. But the next, the next phrase, what are the riches of His glory, His inheritance in the saints? This is a bank account of God's inheritance around you. Look at your neighbors. Look at the people around you. There's a bank account of the inheritance of God sitting in the seats of this building. There's a bank account of the inheritance of God sitting in the seat next to you. There's a bank account of the inheritance of God sitting in your seat. There's a bank account of the inheritance of God in the saints of God. Stop and consider what you are in the eyes of God. You are the inheritance of God. You hold the inheritance of God. Your gifts, your skills, your talents, your influence, your abilities, all the things that define you, what you hold in your hand, the skill that He's given you, the mind that He's given you, the talents that He's given you, the personality that He's given you, the spiritual gifts that He's given you, those things that you've been given, put under the, 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 the leadership and the shepherd, shepherd leadership of God, make you a disciple, a worshiper, a follower. And he starts doing amazing things in you and through you and to you. Because you've let go of what you thought was yours and allowed the one who is the master to empower it and take it. Let's pray. Lord, we expect good things to happen because we make them happen. We, we accept the tools that you give us. Sometimes we're even thankful for them. But we've been guilty of clutching them really tight. Pray for the, the willingness to let go of what you've placed in my hand. I pray for the inspiration to understand that it's just a tiny little staff in my hand, but a miraculous tool in yours. As we cast off into this next year, seeking to be your followers, your disciples. We ask that you would take those things that you've blessed us with and multiply them with your authority and your power. In Jesus' name.